we're in a collection called Heart of the City. And what we're doing is we're exploring God's heart for the city and the church's role in expressing his heart to the city. Um, a few weeks ago, man, I'm so encouraged. Uh, we talked about what it means to be a good neighbor, how the stark reality is that for most of us, if we were to move out of our neighborhoods, no one would notice. And so the challenge a few weeks ago was, do you remember what it was? The basic level, right? The basic level was get to know your neighbor's names. Um, We just moved into our place on Friday, so we're here in San Francisco again. And it's been so wonderful getting to know our neighbors, Galvin and Ming. One of them even offered us some baby supplies. That was like, it's like 200 bucks on Amazon. They're just willing to give it to us for free. It's been so good getting to know our neighbors. Um, John and Soph, they just moved into their new place in the South Bay last week. And they, they actually got dinner with their neighbors yesterday. And so let's really do this, guys. Let's be a presence in our neighborhoods, in our city. It's sad that most of us, when we move out, no one will know. But what if we could be a light, an outpost of the kingdom, a source of love, healing, and joy in the places that we live? And so as we explore God's heart for the city, as we continue in this collection, we have to be willing also to face some difficult things, some ugly realities that come with the territory of being a church in the city. And so today, the thing that I want to pose to you is this. We cannot be an effective church in the city if we are unwilling to confront the G word. No, it's not goodies or actually, I don't know what clever thing to say is G. What's goodies? The G word I'm talking about is gentrification. Gentrification. You know, growing up in San Francisco, I've seen the, go, the city go through so many changes. You know, I recognize that I'm privileged enough to experience a lot of the benefits of gentrification now. But make no mistake, I saw firsthand with my parents and my grandparents the negative effects of gentrification. My parents used to own a business in Japantown. Right now in the corner of Japantown, right across the street from the Japanese market, there used to be a bowling alley there, and they owned a coffee shop there. As immigrants, they came here, they started their own business Unfortunately, it had to shut down. Rent prices got too high, and they had to sell their business. I've seen it affect my family. My grandfather, he pastored a church here in San Francisco. And I remember growing up in this immigrant church um, when I was a kid, and we'd move from venue and location to location because it was getting increasingly more expensive to be here in San Francisco. Now, luckily, my parents and my grandparents and many of our um, relatives and families, they've gone through it for us. Most of us are on the receiving end of gentrification, but make no mistake, it's still affecting our city today. Now, I do want to say this. Um, I kind of feel like I'm flailing my arms in the dark talking about this because I'm just beginning to dive into it. But I believe as a church, I want us to be aware of where we fit into the picture in a city that's being more and more gentrified every year. And how we as a church are called to respond, we cannot ignore it. And so we're going to talk about that today. And so will you journey with me as I try my best? Um, I may say some things that are wrong or not on, completely on the mark, but I do believe God wants to at least get the conversation started in our hearts today. And so will you pray with me? Because not for you. I really need prayer today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you move today? We want to be a church that is not unaware but that is aware of what's going on in our city, in our neighborhoods, 
And so would you give us a heart to see? Would you open our eyes? Would you challenge us? If at the very least you give us an inkling of conviction to dive deeper, that would be enough. So today, would you come and move our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to do a big setup here. What is gentrification? There are many definitions. One that I found helpful for the context of this teaching is this. Gentrification is the influx of wealthier residents into a neighborhood that leads to the involuntary displacement of existing residents, history, and culture. The way I see it, this is the Mickey Show version, very inaccurate, but I'm going to try my best. Wealthy people come into an urban neighborhood. They see the potential there. They come in, they buy a property, they start their businesses, infuse their culture into the neighborhood, coffee shops, avocado toast, all the things that you can imagine. This attracts more and more wealthier people that are like them. And as this happened, property value increases, um, rent goes up, many of you feel the sting of that, and the character and the culture of the neighborhood begins to change. It begins to reflect more of the outsiders coming in than of the long-term residents who have been living there. And ultimately what we see is the displacement of poor communities by rich outsiders. Chances are, I'm going out on a limb here, most of us here probably benefit more from gentrification than we do suffer from it, right? Let's be real. We enjoy the trendy new restaurants popping up in the mission. We love frequenting the coffee shops and the boutiques and the plant stores in Hayes Valley. And the, we've, but we may feel the sting of high rent, but we're privileged enough to afford it. We can complain about it, but we can still, most of us can still live here even if barely. You know, Chris and I, we just purchased a new home, and we recognize there's a level of privilege that we have and even a contribution to the gentrification of our city, even in our purchasing of a home here in the city. We recognize our blessing and our privilege. I think that's first and foremost so important for many of us to understand that we have privilege here in our city. In many ways, we as believers, you know, we talked in the last series, we identify many times as the exiles in Israel's story. But in some cases, in in this teaching, I think it's helpful for us not to see ourselves as the exiles, but more oftentimes than not, we're actually the Babylonians. We're driving people out, and we have to feel and understand why this is happening and what we can do. Now, a brief history of gentrification. Just stick with me. I promise we're going somewhere. In the 50s and 60s, we began seeing a mass exodus of white, upper, middle-class people from racially diverse urban cities to more racially homogenous suburban areas. And so people were moving out of the cities. It was a phenomenon. They actually called it white flight or white exodus. And suburbs were a response to the diverse melting pot of the city and all of the complex intricacies and discomforts and problems that came with it. In suburbs, they sold comfort. Come on, if you can't find, now we finally have an H-Mart in the city, but we had to drive all the way to the South Bay to the Burbs to go get it before. Suburbs sold comfort. Your neighbors look like you. They think like you. They probably make as much as you do. No need to interact with the other. No need to be burdened with the poor. And so in the 50s and 60s and trending onwards, we saw a mass exodus from the city of people that were middle and upper class, most that just happened to be white. But in recent decades, we began seeing an opposite trend. We see that the same people who left decades ago are now returning to the cities. 
And as they return, they're bringing their new suburban cultures to the diverse melting pots of the city. And as people are flooding back into the cities, properties are being sold and bought, businesses are being started, and they are investing into neighborhoods that have for long times been divested. And while people coming back to the city, I mean, at glance, this sounds good, right? People coming back to the city, investing in neighborhoods, that sounds like a good thing. But we have to recognize the negative ramifications that also come with it. Peter Moskowitz, who wrote a phenomenal book, a non-Christian book called How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood, it's a phenomenal read. It's very insightful. Um, I'll share these resources again in the email. But he says this, gentrification at its deepest level is really about reorienting the purpose of cities away from being spaces that provide for the poor and middle classes and toward being spaces that generate capital for the rich. And so neighborhoods started to draw more and more people in, generate more capital and interest, but it came at the expense of the less wealthier residents living there. It came at the expense of the poor and the lower class. And while cities have historically been havens of safety and shelter for the poor, now the poor are being driven out. And while cities were historically melting pots of diversity, now low-income residents, most of whom which are statistically people of color, are being driven out. They can no longer afford to stay. He goes on to say, gentrification does not mean that the suburbs are over or that that cities are becoming more diverse. All it means is that our geography of inequality is being redrawn. Gentrification is not integration, but a new form of segregation. The borders around the ghettos have simply been rebuilt. According to the Bay Area Equity Atlas, two years ago, they found that 54% of low-income households of color in the Bay Area are either in neighborhoods that are currently gentrifying or are at risk of gentrification. And of that 54%, the number is even higher for certain communities. 66% of the Bay Area's low-income African-American households are either experiencing gentrification or the risk of gentrification. 55% of the Bay Area's low-income Latino households, 48% of the Bay Area's low-income Asian Pacific Islander households, and 50% of the Bay Area's low-income Native American households. This is happening right here, right now. I mean, just think even back in the last two years, how many restaurants do we see that have been staples in the Mission District have been pushed out because of higher rent prices? How many black families have been displaced from historically black neighborhoods like Hunters Point and Bayview and Petrero Hill? You know, if you go to Petrero Hill and you see 18th Street, you see Plow there. I mean, I love Plow. Their lemon ricotta pancakes are amazing. But did you know Petrero Hill used to be a predominantly black neighborhood? But how many families have been displaced? How many immigrant churches in the Sunset, in the Richmond District, in the Tenderloin have shut down because of a lack of resources and support? This is real. This is right here and right now. Now, some people may argue that gentrification makes our communities better. And to some extent, maybe they're right. But the question we have to ask is this. What is your definition of better and better for who? In this article I was reading, it was such a sad uh, testimony of 
a low-income resident being driven from a neighborhood that's being gentrified, and he said this, I, I want a nice store in my neighborhood or a shopping center or a grocery store or a safer neighborhood, but I also want to be able to stay here when it happens. This is the stark reality of gentrification. See, the issue with gentrification isn't so much about what's brought in, but who's being driven out. Listen, the prosperity of the neighborhood should not come at the cost of its most vulnerable residents. My $14 avocado toast should not come at the cost of my neighbor being displaced. This should make us uncomfortable. We should feel the tension of this, guys, being a church here in the city. Now, the question is this, what does this have to do with the church? Isn't gentrification an economic issue? Come on, let the politicians figure it out. Let the nonprofits figure out what role do we play as the church? You know, people come into the neighborhood, they buy houses, rent goes up. That's just the way life is. What does that have to do with Jesus? Yes, it's an economic issue, but it's so much more. It's a social issue. It's a justice issue. It's a racism issue. It's a spiritual issue. And yes, it's a gospel issue. It matters to God because the gospel, how many of you know this? The gospel is not just good news for the middle or the upper class yuppies. It's good news for the poor. And the gospel isn't the gospel unless it's good news for everybody. And this is the tension that we have to deal with. Listen, if the gospel is just good news for millennials in tech that make six figures, It's not the gospel. It has to be good news for everybody. It's not the gospel unless it's good news for the rich and the poor. It's not gospel unless it's good news for the upper class and the lower class. It's not gospel unless it's good for white people and people of color. It's good news for everybody. In other words, we can say we love our neighbors as ourselves with all of our heart and soul, but what does that mean when every month more and more of our neighbors are being driven away by increasing rent? How can people trust that we care for their souls when we care nothing about their buildings, their streets, their homes, their neighborhoods? We somehow disconnect social issues from the gospel. But how many of you know the gospel is holistic? It's not just spiritual. It's social. It's economic. It encapsulates and redeems all of it. This is why the church should be at the forefront of confronting gentrification. We should be leading the charge and holding conversations and finding creative solutions for how we can see justice and equity in our cities because it's the heart of God. It's part of our calling and being a good neighbor. Now, we read this passage, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, a few weeks ago. But I want us to look at this passage now in the context of what we're talking about today. Because back then we talked about we talked about this passage in the context of being a good neighbor. But what what context now can we see by looking it at it through the lens of what we're talking about? This is what the prophet Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. It doesn't say seek the peace and prosperity 
of only the wealthy and the privileged. It doesn't say seek the peace and prosperity of the people who live similar lifestyles to you. It says seek the peace and the prosperity of the entire city. This includes the poor. This includes the blue-collar worker. This includes the people experiencing homelessness. And listen, the Bible doesn't mention gentrification once, but it does have a lot to say about this word shalom that's often used for peace. The word for peace that's often used is shalom, and it doesn't just mean peace. It actually means something more. It means wholeness. It means universal flourishing for all people. Shalom says real peace only comes when there's peace for all. And so we cannot neglect shalom for every person in our city. So how do we do this? What do we do? How do we respond as the church? Well, you're in luck because I do not have an action plan for you today. (laughs) But I want to talk about the heart. I want to deal with the heart. I want us to be aware and ask God, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to respond? I want to say something about something. Sorry, I'm being super vague. Um. But I want to be very careful how I say it, okay? And so this doesn't necessarily reflect how I feel, uh, but I do want to mention it for the purposes of this talk. In 2016, there was a big thing that happened here in San Francisco. Hillsong came to San Francisco. It was huge. Hillsong was planting churches all across America, Los Angeles, New York, and so many people were excited, hyped. Krista and I, we love Hillsong Church. They've been so, so, such a gift to us in our ministry, and people were excited. Finally, it's like H-Mart, we don't need that, but Hillsong, we need Hillsong here in the city. Many people were excited, but there was also a, a big chunk of people, natives, locals, that were actually pushing back. A lot of churches that have been here for decades that actually were pushing back a little bit. And a writer, his name is Nate J. Lee, he actually wrote a blog post that went viral around that time. Any of you guys read it by any chance? Okay. Yeah, and he, you know, he's been here in San Francisco, person of color. I mean, he's been in the ministry and church here in San Francisco. He wrote a blog post that went viral responding to Hillsong's video announcing their San Francisco church plan. And he critiqued the video because in the video, you know, the pastor, he was saying things like, you know, God has, I'm going to try to do an Australian accent, God has great plans for the city of San Francisco. And I think they end the video by saying, San Fran, the best is yet to come. By the way, we do not do San Fran, okay? SF and San Francisco are okay. Don't do San Fran, okay? But he was saying, San Fran, the best is yet to come. And in response, this guy named Nate I would not have responded in this way. I don't necessarily agree with all the sentiments, but he said this, any kind of language that implies that God's work or God's plan starts when we arrive is indicative not only of terrible theology, but of white Christian exceptionalism, the oppressive belief that the correct kind of salvation and healing can only be facilitated through us on our terms, with our methods, and us always happens to be white missionaries, white pastors, and white churches. Listen, I love my white brothers and sisters, but Christianity, there's a history of white people influencing a lot of the ministries that have gone into places in need and communities in need and kind of enforcing their culture, their ways into that particular people group. But Nate, if you read the blog article, I mean, he is savage. I, I would not have said it this way. There's a point where he says, you will do this, Hillsong. He's like, you will sit 
and learn from immigrant pastors who have been pouring into neighborhoods for decades. You will sit and ask black pastors who have been the foundation of their communities what God is doing in their neighborhoods. You will sit and receive prayer and blessing from Latino revivalists who have been contending for God to move in the city for decades. Very bluntly, he was saying this in his blog article. And honestly, maybe they did. You know, maybe Hillsong did come in before, talk to people, have conversations. But nonetheless, this was a... Um, this was a triggering point for a lot of locals and natives. And while I don't completely agree with everything Nate wrote in his post, I can understand where he's coming from. Historically, the church has come into communities in need, enforcing their ways, their culture as the best way. I mean, how many faith communities in Southeast Asia and Africa have been largely influenced by the Western church? And their beautiful, the beautiful clothes that they wear are now replaced with Western suits. And the beautiful music that they have from their culture are replaced with hymns. I mean, I love hymns, but if you've been to Africa, yo, there's something special about their worship. And the same critiques can be said of gentrification. The problem is not an influx of resources or diversity. The problem is the belief that outsiders know what's best without spending time listening and learning and feeling the weight and the pain and the burden of the communities that God is calling them to reach. In other words, listen, I love Hillsong. Don't get me wrong. But Nate's criticism wasn't that Hillsong was coming to San Francisco, but how Hillsong was coming to San Francisco. As a church, instead of coming into our neighborhoods with an attitude like, we're here, 99's here in the mission. Yo, we're going to see revival break out in the streets. Potrero Park, the skaters are going to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come and God's finally going to move in our area, in our region. How often do we talk like that? Like, God, thank you for placing us here. Oh, man, we're awesome. We're the light here in the city. But what if instead of coming into neighborhoods like that, what if we came in with an attitude like, God, we actually want to hear and learn about what you're already doing here. Come on, who are the people that have been on the ground running? I had this weird disdain for immigrant churches because I grew up in an immigrant church, and so I understand the pain and the burden of, of them. But, you know, lately, in the past few years, I've come to really respect and honor a lot of the churches that have been here in neighborhoods that, that aren't popping anymore, in immigrant churches where membership is declining, but there's wisdom, there's experience in so many of the people that have been here on the ground doing amazing work for the Lord. We want to take time to both enjoy the beauty and feel the pain of the community and the neighborhood that we are inhabiting. David Dawkinson, he's actually a Christian author who writes a lot about this in a book called Neighborliness. If you want to dive deeper out, I encourage you guys to check it out. He says this, Our best intentions are the most impactful when they're formed by the actual needs and desires of our community. Listen, y'all, if you've been in a relationship, I'm going to give you some marriage 411, okay? You need to know your love languages, okay? Because I'll tell you what. Krista's love language Quality time, access service, and touch. She does not do gifts. If I spend an entire afternoon 
crafting the perfect gift for her. I mean, being so intentional about the wrapping paper. Oh my God, it's her favorite color. She loves dogs. I'm gonna throw a dog in there. Never mind, that's gonna die. But I'm gonna make this gift, spend so much time on it, and she's gonna feel so loved, but I give it to her. She might be like, oh, that's thoughtful. But it doesn't, it doesn't reach her heart, right? But if I were to say, Krista, tonight, you know, instead of just us doing our own things, let's sit on the couch gaze into each other's eyes and talk about the ongoings of our soul, uh, the inner workings of our minds, and just talk about the deep things. I mean, Paul and I were talking about this before service. We both love going to the movies, but for partners with quality time, that ain't quality time. For me, um, I'm a very shallow person. I love um, touch and words. I'm super easy. Quality time's my lowest, and so I love just like being next to you or just watching a movie. That's how I feel close to you, but for someone who's quality time, maybe not so much. And I think a lot of times we come into neighborhoods, we come into cities, ministries, churches, people, believers, and we say, this is what the city needs. This is what the neighborhood needs. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's come up with a game plan. But what if we were to come in more humbly and say, I want to learn what's going on here first. I want to feel the bur- What are the actual needs? What if what I'm doing is actually just more noise? What if I can actually tap into what Holy Spirit's already doing here? He goes on to say this. Sorry, it's kind of a long quote, but it's powerful. Processing and engaging with matters relating to racial and socioeconomic inequality takes time. You may be compelled to try and to take action or use your influence to fix an issue. However, you may do more harm than good if you do not take the time to listen, learn, and grow in your own heart first. Tension is accompanied by discomfort. Discomfort leads to prayer, repentance, and growth. Engage discomfort. Embrace it and learn from it. It has a lot to teach you. Are we close enough to feel the discomfort of the neighborhood that we're in? Are we close enough to the neighborhood to become burdened with the injustices that people are facing ourselves? Are we close enough to the neighborhood to feel the tension and the pain and the weight of the burden of the people that are living here? Maybe we need less outreach and more relationships. See, volunteerism that isn't rooted in relationship and understanding can become toxic. When we come in and assume we know what's best for people without first listening and learning, that's when helping begins to hurt. You know, this is why I respect and honor organizations like YWAM. You know, Emily's part of YWAM and City Impact because they're not just coming in. They're planting themselves in the neighborhood. Emily lived in the Tenderloin. She was there on the ground, and I'm sure you were— close enough to feel the weight and the burden of the people that are there. They have planted themselves in neighborhoods God's calling them to love and serve, not just coming in, doing an outreach and bouncing, but they're close enough to feel the burdens and the pain of the community. They're able to make long-term relationships sustainable. The author puts it this way, sustainable and meaningful change will only come when genuine relationships between the rich and the poor begin to form, between the privileged and the underprivileged, between those who benefit from gentrification and those who suffer from it. Relationship is everything. I mean, I can't tell you, growing up in the church, I had a certain idea, even in people who identify as LGBTQ. Everything changed when I had an LGBTQ friend right? If you've ever been in that situation and growing up, it's just a theory. It's theology. 
But when you actually meet someone, you hear their story, you see what God's doing in their lives, all of a sudden, it's not this unnuanced black and white thing. All of a sudden, there's deep tension there, and we have to dig into it. We have to figure out how to do it. You know, I have this really huge soft spot for people with back pain. Um, I, I, every Sunday, I'm so concerned for Paulette because we've talked about this. You know, she's had a history of back pain. I have too. And so I'm so worried when she bends down and picks stuff up. I'm trying to make sure she doesn't do too much. Um, and being in relationship, just, just knowing someone who's experienced that and then me experiencing the pain of back pain, now all of a sudden, it's not just her thing anymore. I understand. I feel, I felt the pain and the burden of what it means to have back pain. Lord, forgive, I pray none of y'all have it. It sucks, right? But when you're close enough to someone to feel their pain, man, God uses that. All of a sudden, it's not just, you know, a goodwill issue. All of a sudden, you take it on into your heart, and you say, it's not okay until they're okay. So this begs the question, do we stop buying $14 avocado toast from the coffee shop? Do we stop, (laughs) boyfriend said yes, do we stop enjoying mimosas from our favorite brunch joints? Do we stop living in overpriced apartment complexes and feeding the machine? I think more often than not, we lack nuance in the body of Christ when talking about things like this. We tend to reduce and oversimplify and generalize. We make one thing good and one thing bad, black and white, evil and pure, More often than not, it's complex. Gentrification is complex. New investment into an area that's been divested over time is not a bad thing. New residents coming in and out is not a bad thing. New businesses coming in is not a bad thing. But the question is, are we also willing to confront the ways that these things may negatively be affecting those who are not as privileged as us to enjoy them? Are we willing to not look away when there is an equal treatment of the neighbors who are already living there? Maybe I want to propose to you this, and maybe this might change over time as I'm diving deeper into this. Maybe it's not this or that. Maybe it's this and that. Maybe it's possible to enjoy your boba guys and volunteer at your neighborhood food shelter. Maybe it's possible to enjoy your $35 mimosas and spend time learning about gentrification, cyclical patterns of poverty, and how it all feeds into this issue. All that to say, today's message isn't so much about a definitive solution or action plan, but I want us to do one thing. I want us to open our eyes to our city. Not just the flashy, exciting parts of our city, but the deep, often overlooked parts that no one seems to see. I want us to get close enough to the neighborhood to feel its burdens and injustices. And so this is my charge to you, 99, and yes, wherever city that you're living in or church that you're serving, can we please lean into our neighborhoods, into our cities? Can we start by educating ourselves about gentrification, about how it's affecting our city and the neighborhoods we're in? Can we actually put our ears to the ground and not rely on our church leaders to do it for us? And so we plan an outreach, and then you could come and participate. What if we as the body can collectively put our ears to the ground, all of us carrying different expressions of God's heart, and come together and say, we can actually come here, listen and learn, and be help, 
be God's light here in the place that God has called us to. And so over the next few years, I'm not even going to say the next few months, over the next few years, and I'm not in a hurry, I want us to take the time to listen. I want us to take the time to learn. And I want us to take the time to open our hearts, to feel what burden for our neighborhood and our communities God is calling us to carry. I think he's already doing it. I mean, man, Alex, I, I, he's the golden child. I talk about him all the time. But Alex is already doing it. I see people in our community doing it. Gloria's boyfriend, Daniel, man, sorry, I, I'm going to call him out. But on Sundays after church, he would just put together these little goodie bags and just pass them out to people that he often passed by on the streets. No church ministry. No flashy Instagram post, no caption this, no, no even like tooting his own horn. He just did it by himself. No one even knew, but I only heard about it because Dan lived with him for a few months and he saw him do it. We need as believers to see more of that, to see Emily, support Emily, man. Emily's on the ground running in the TL. She's pouring into the people there, really making an impact and change there. She's listening and learning and also seeing where the needs are and meeting the needs of the community. Come on, we as a church can do this. And this is my heart and this is my goal. And I will be so happy as a pastor if I see this years from now. You know, I've seen churches like Echo, that's kind of like our sister church in Southern California. We really respect their ministry, but, you know, Pastor Brian, he was telling me a curious thing. He's like, Mickey, we didn't do a single outreach event until year five of our church. I said, dang, y'all doing nothing? Are y'all lazy or something? They say, no, we just took the time to listen for the heart of God for our area, to wait until the burden of what God's called us to do, what impact he's called us to make. And so that became so real and so tangible and so evident that we were able to move with the heart of God. And now they have such a powerful ministry that, that shares and outpours love on kids with disabilities. They have such a huge ministry for fostering kids and families that don't have the same opportunities many of us have. And it's because they waited and they listened to the heart of God for their city. My my goal, my passion, my dream would be if years from now we're able to come to that together. What is 99 called to do here in our neighborhood? What is 99 called us to do here in our city? What expression or burden of the Father's heart has he called us to carry? Well, we have to do it together. It's not me and Krista going to the prayer closet and saying, it's this. I think it's collectively as a community coming together, bringing the burdens of our city and seeing what God is highlighting now. And so I want to challenge us this week, just make a decision to start opening your hearts and asking God, God, I want to be part of this. I want to see you move in our city.